Hi everybody, it's Mark McGuinness at Lateral Action, and I'm delighted to welcome back Stephen Pressfield. Hi Steve, how are you doing? I'm good, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. It's great to be doing this again. So, as I'm sure most of you listening will know, Steve is not only the author of a string of best-selling novels, he's also written extensively about the creative process itself and the ethos of both the artist and the warrior. So anybody, you know, if, if you like lateral action and the kind of thing that we do over here, head over to stephenpressfield.com and I think you will find Steve's ideas, his ideas on writing and creativity very congenial, as well as, obviously, you know, the, the novels themselves. Now, Steve's book is uh, The War of Art. It's a creativity classic, and he recently followed it up with a sequel called Turning Pro, and that book triggered an email discussion between Steve and me, and we decided it'd be a good idea to try and capture some of the ideas that emerge from it in a recording. So here we are today, and the theme of the, the conversation today is creativity and professionalism. So, Steve, some people would say, in, in fact they do say to me, that creativity and professionalism are, are poles apart, that if you try and be too professional and, and buttoned down, then it can crush your inspiration. But there's another school of thought that says, well, true creativity is really the realm of the professional, where, you know, the amateurs are just dabblers. So if you're really going to do it properly, then you need to, to take it seriously and, and, you know, and become a professional. So... Maybe you could kick us off with, with your thoughts on this debate. Um, well, you know, an analogy, I think, Mark, is, might be to uh, athletes. Right. If you think about somebody that has natural speed or natural coordination or something like that, as an analogy to somebody that's naturally creative, a writer, a filmmaker, whatever, um, the athlete, if, it's, if he or she is not a doesn't take a professional attitude towards it is not going to go very far. They're just going to flame out early or dabble, or they're certainly going to get beaten every time by somebody who who takes takes uh, you know their their athletic ability in a professional manner. Just simply things like uh, like with your book, resilience, dealing with rejection, dealing with defeat. That to me is is uh, part of how I would define professionalism. And um, anybody that's going to be any good as a, in a creative field or an athlete or a warrior or you name it is going to have to deal with their own self-destructive tendencies, tendencies to procrastinate, to self-sabotage, that sort of thing, um, to take rejection too personally, et cetera, et cetera, to have handle adversity. And um, so uh, I can't imagine that creativity and professionalism would be mutually exclusive. To me, they, uh, the, the professionalism facilitates the creativity. Right. So, so the, the, the professional mindset and training and, and practice, you would say, is there to support and facilitate rather than, you know, to, to kind of... Exactly. Now, I'll give you an example here, and I'm yeah. sure you, you know about... You've had experiences like this, too. Sometimes writers will submit uh, a piece of fiction um, to a publisher and uh, the fiction will be really good, but it'll need to be taken, you know, just to the next level to make it publishable. And yeah. the, uh, the editor will um, try to coach the writer to, t to get the material up to the next level. 
And a lot of times the writers will refuse to do that. Um, to say, this is it. It's my way or the highway. And when you, when you talk to somebody like that, you can see that they are in a real amateur mindset. They're taking it. They're um, taking things, taking criticism much too personally. Um, and, uh, the result, it, it really, to me, is out-and-out self-destruction. It's, you know, my idea of resistance with a capital R. Yeah. It's resistance defeating the creative person because they're thinking as an amateur. And what happens eventually is the editor throws up his hands and says, I just can't work with this person. And somebody who might be, you know, might have tremendous gifts um, basically destroys their career by being an amateur, by not being a pro. Right, so that's kind of resistance taking the form of the pride of you know this is this is my writing. It's it's kind of sacrosanct. It's it's divinely right. inspired, or, or you know the fruit of my own you know unique genius, and it, it can never be tampered with. But you're saying right. professional. Let me, let me butt in again. Sorry, Mark, but think about uh, like a tennis player, let's say, who might have a flaw in the action of their serve, and they refuse to be coached on it. Well, who's going to win them? or an opponent who has been coached. Well, I think this is quite a, a topical one on this side of the pond with Andy Murray. I mean, he's a <laughs> right. case in point. Partly why I brought it up. Yeah, I, I love the way you segued into that, Steve. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, you know, he, he is somebody who's obviously got huge amount of talent and he's, he's certainly, you know, he, he's been a pro for many years. But, you know, he's never, never quite making it to the level that you know he would win a grand slam tournament and yet somebody at that level he's got the humility to go to i think it was lendl and say you know i want you to coach me and make me better you know and and take the feedback and take the lessons so that's to me shows great uh, maturity and wisdom he's doing absolutely the right thing and he's he's reaping the rewards so Okay, so it's very often, you know, that the higher people go, the more humble they they can become in some some cases. Maybe not all of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, this leads us into one question that has kind of been on my mind in relation to your work specifically for a while, because I know that because you write these historical novels with, and, you, and you've obviously done a huge amount of research and fabulous levels of detail that allows you to bring the ancient world back to life. And I think you say somewhere that to write a historical novel, you have to have the equivalent of a PhD in the period. So on one level, doing the research is clearly part of doing the work, in your phrase. You know, it's, it's part of being a professional. But how do you deal with research, masquer you know, resistance masquerading as research? So, I mean, sometimes I, I come across a writer who who spends all the time in the library and online, but they never actually write anything. You know, they, they're just amassing knowledge. Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. And, and uh, resist, uh, research can definitely become resistance. You just, uh, it's a great excuse not to actually have to write. Mm. And what I meant about a PhD in, in, in a historical period is that by the time you're through researching a period, you have got a sort of unofficial PhD. You've had to learn that level of familiarity, um, which I just call, in my mind, mastering the material. You have to do that first. But here's what I do. In fact, the, I'm working on a project now that's very research heavy. And one of the ways that I handle it is if I have a four-hour working day, 
which is my working day before I'm too tired, I will say the first hour I'm going to do research. When that hour is up, I'm going to stop right. and, and actually do real work. And in, in my case, the, this research that I'm doing involves interviews that I've done with people. So for the first hour, I'll, I'll just kind of listen to an interview and transcribe it mm-hmm. so that, you know, and then, but then when the hour's up, I'll, I'll stop because you, right. you need to, you need to, to immerse yourself in the research. There's no doubt about that, but uh, it can be a real temptation to, you know, just spend all your time there and never work. So it just, it's for me, I just have to kind of set a, a, a boundary for myself and time and stop and then get to work. So it's have, putting that boundary in place sounds critical. I mean, it's... Yes, otherwise you'll spend all day doing it because it's so much easier than actually working. Yeah, yeah, I know. So I'm getting flashbacks to my academic. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's always something more to know. There's always something else you could read and, and another, you know, footnote you could add. And But, you know, I guess it's like the thing that research expands to fill the space that you allow yeah. for it. So <laughs> you're saying you just constrain yeah. that space. And it, Are you talking cool. about Parkinson's Law, Mark? Yeah. Is that where you get it? Yes, I love that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so following on from that, you know, what is the relationship between research and imagination for you? I mean, it, it, do you, you know, it, in terms of triggering a story or a, a scene or a character, do you start with the story in mind or and then do the research as a kind of way of filling out the background, or does it kind of emerge from yes. details that you <laughs> uncover? Yes, after well, uh, the first one. Right. Uh, actually. It, you know, it's very interesting. I have a friend named uh, Randall Wallace who's who wrote Braveheart, yeah, and has done a number of other historical things, and I've uh, novels and stuff like that. And um, I've, I've worked with him on a couple of projects, and I'm always amazed at how little research he does, uh, <laughs> and and it it works great for him. And I think that uh, I'm I'm actually kind of the same way. I think that the uh, you can a boy, a storyteller can kind of put together a story without knowing a tremendous amount about the era or the background, at least in general. And then the research sort of is brought in to make it believable. Um, but I would bet you we'll never know. But let's say when Shakespeare was going to do Julius Caesar, yeah. I'm sure that he did not sit down. And you know, he, I'm sure he read Plutarch's Life of Caesar. That was it, right? 21 yeah. pages yeah. or something like that. He certainly didn't read a thousand books about Caesar. Yeah, but as a playwright, he was thinking, what, what is a theme here that will engage the audience and will engage me and my imagination? And so I'm sure he, he kind of blocked out his story just in his head before he even immersed himself in the research and then just backed that up. Mm-hmm. And made plausible by um, by learning, studying the era, et cetera, et cetera, as much as he did, which wasn't that much anyway. And it worked. What's the best thing that's ever been written about Caesar? <laughs> Shakespeare's play, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of shaped our our image of him. Uh, now that's different, Mark. Say than doing history. I mean, if yeah. you're going to write something about uh, you know a true history about Queen Baudica or something, yeah. then you know you're not really you're not really you don't care too much about creating a story that's going to rivet an audience or you know hold a bunch of hold readers you know glued to their chairs. Yeah. You're just then going to kind of start you know she was born she grew up she died you know. Yeah, and we don't know much in between. Right. 
Okay, so I mean, are you, does this mean that your stories could operate independent of period? I mean, do you do you have the character and then you decide where I'm going to um, where am I going to set this, or is it not quite as as broad as that? It's not quite as broad as that because I do think periods obviously inform what's going to happen, you know, and and how um, what the worldviews of the characters are, what the ethics of the time are. Uh, and, and, I mean, what's it, what's interesting to me, really, about going into a period a lot of times is that um, you can deal with different political issues or different ethical issues, different moral issues, different family dynamic issues than you than you could in the present. Um, and that's kind of the fun of traveling there. For instance, if you're writing about the ancient Spartans, you can bring up, you can have characters make dead out declarations of honor that you could never put in the mouths of a contemporary person. And, but yet a contemporary reader will respond to that because that's in their own heart. Like to cite Randall Wallace's Braveheart, you know, he had all kinds of uh, speeches in there that, you know, where people would make these heroic speeches um, and the audience loved it. But they're certainly the kind of speeches that no uh, colonel in Afghanistan could make today. <laughs> laughed out of the room, right? Yeah. So yeah. I'm not sure I answered your question, but that. No, no, you did. And it's also, I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating about Gates of Fire was the way you got inside the psychology of the Spartans. Because when I'd first heard about them as a small boy, I thought, gosh, they sounded like inhuman monsters. You know, they're just these kind of fighting machines with no. It sounded like there were virtually no home comforts or, you know, you couldn't imagine them having a family life. And I think one of the most telling scenes in that book for me was the one where you, I think it's on the eve of the battle where they, a straw or a piece of stick, they they take apart the two parts of themselves, the right. lawyer and, yeah. and the the domestic. I mean, that was, to me, that, that, that was one of the kind of pivotal moments in the story, that it just gave you an insight, gave me a way of thinking, oh, this is how they could have done it. Yeah. That was sort of a, the Spartan equivalent of a, of a dog tag or an ID tag. What, <laughs> I'll just say this for your, for your listeners. What they would do, this was in case someone got killed in the battle and was unrecognizable, you know, got yeah. burned or whatever happened. Yeah. They, would, they would take a twig before the battle and break it in half and uh, leaving a kind of a ragged junction in between it. And they'd bring one half with them into the battle and the other half they would leave out. So that if their corpse was then brought out from the battle and then nobody knew who it was, they could take that twig and match it to, to a twig that had been left behind. So from the writer's point of view, you can make that into a metaphor and talk about the soldier going into battle leaves half of his sensibility behind and takes the other half with him into the fight. So, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm glad that scene resonated with you, Mark. I, I like that one myself. Well, it did, and it kind of took me back to my original training in psychotherapy, you know, where you would look at the different parts of the personality that, you know, in some contexts you can, you can act like one person, and in another context you'd act like someone completely different. Yeah. And that was a fairly extreme example of it but i just thought i was just fascinated the way you picked up on that historical detail and there's a kind of you know opened up the psychological truth behind it but that that is an example of how research can really pay off because if you hadn't done research and knew that 
that little yeah. thing about the twigs, you know, you would never, yeah, it would it would never trigger a creative way of using it. Right. So I mean that that is that twig really. <laughs> you could almost say it's the um, from the writer's point of view, it's the interface between the imagination and history. You know, yeah, you've got yeah. your you know your, your your clue from history, but then you've got to take that and and add the imagination to it to 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 really flesh out the character. Yeah. Okay. Well, kind of moving forward in time quite radically, your your most recent novel, The Profession, is set in 2032, which kind of maybe want to ask, you know, how do you research the future? Was I mean, was this a completely different writing process or was it just an extension of the usual method? Uh, you know, that's a good question, Mark. I mean, obviously you can't research the future, but um, for me it was... Um, um, I'm kind of I'm politically involved, and certain issues um, trouble me with where we're going as a yeah. society. And uh, so um, I just wanted to explore some of those things, like some of the trends that are starting now. Like in this case, the trend toward using um, professional contractors rather than actual soldiers to fight wars. Right. And um, so in that case. I think you 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 do sort of block out a future you, in a you know I didn't write an actual quote unquote bible of what the future would be like but I sort of did it in my head um and just projected in the imagination in my imagination where certain trends would be you know 30 years from now um but obviously there's no way to research the future but it was a fun thing to do right so you you but and uh, I'm extrapolating from where we are now. Yeah. And so far, uh, since I wrote it like about three years ago, what I predicted is coming true. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope the whole thing doesn't come true. I don't want to spoil the book for anybody. But yeah. it's, um, let's move on to more of a, speci- you know, a, a more specific meaning of the word professional in the context of creative work. This is in your latest non-fiction book turning pro which the phrase as, as people will know who've, who've read the war of art originally you used it in the war of art you propose a very specific type of professionalism so could you explain what you mean by the phrase turning pro let me ask you a question mark since i know you you're familiar with my thinking in this right okay uh, how how would you define what I call turning pro, or can you tell me a little bit about how you see that? You say, you say I'm proposing a specific type of professionalism. Yeah. What what does that mean to you? Well, to me, I think it means committing, committing to actually achieving something. And you know, we obviously we're thinking specifically in terms of the arts, but it it, it could be in other spheres as well. You commit, and when you commit, then you stop complaining and you stop acting out and you stop making excuses. And you accept the pain and the consequences and the humiliations and the setbacks that you're going to have to experience. It's basically almost like a Buddhist concept of just accepting, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. And this means that I'm going to have to to learn these lessons probably the hard way. And it will take me a while, but it's worth it because I'm committing to the art or to the sport or, you know, what, whatever your profession may be. How does that well, sound? Mark, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, that's, that really is exactly uh, what I'm talking about. Now, to flash back for um, readers or listeners who uh, don't know um, about what my 
the, my book, The War of Art. In it, it posits uh, a force that I call resistance with a capital R. And resistance is that negative force that stops us from doing our work. And in The War of Art, I, the, the question naturally arose, well, how do you overcome resistance? My answer to that in The War of Art was, you turn pro, which is exactly the description that you gave just now, Mark. And um, so then I wanted to go into greater detail. That's why the second book, Turning Pro. But to go back to resistance for a second, the, the, in, in my view, this comes from 40 years of experience, and uh, enough people seem to agree with me that I think this is pretty true. Mm-hmm. The, the mental uh, landscape that the artist or the creative person faces as he sets out or she sets out to do a work is not neutral. It's not a flat playing field. There is a, a force that is working that is that is working against us constantly, a headwind if you want to call it that, and that is resistance with the capital R, and it's the tendency to procrastinate, to um, sabotage yourself, to take things overly personal, um, all of this kind of amateur moves that you were just talking about in your little synopsis there, so. If we're going to succeed, I think we all start as amateurs. We all think, well, I'll sit down, I'll make a movie. We'll sit down, I'll sit down, I'll, I'll write a novel. No problem. Piece of cake, Finnegan's away, I can do it. Yeah. And then, you know, we realize that not only can't we do it as far as reaching that level of, of art, but we can't even make ourselves sit down and work for one day. You know, we're getting stoned, we're chasing women, we're doing, you know, coming up with a million things to do. So, um, the acquisition of professionalism, of a professional mindset that says, I'm going to get up every morning, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do my work. If I uh, encounter adversity, I'm not going to take it personally. I'm going to rally. I'm going to rise to, again and keep going. By the same token, if I achieve overwhelming success, I'm not going to let that go to my head either. I'm going to keep my eye on the ball, which is doing the work serving the muse, going forward day after day, and uh, taking the blows, as you say, in the arena. And um, that is my conception of of what a professional is. Now, on the cover of Turning Pro, my partner, Sean Coyne, and I, it's it's an old-fashioned lunch pail. It's an illustration of an old-fashioned lunch pail and a thermos. And the reason we picked that is it's sort of, what blue-collar guys would bring to work with them when they were working in a steel mill or on a construction site or something like that. In other words, it was a real, um, it represented the ethic of the professional in my mind, which is a kind of a no bullshit, get up in the morning, put on your work boots and your hard hat, go to the job site, do your work, and then go home and knock off, get up again the next morning, do it again. That, uh, without preciousness, um, without ego, um, just uh, focusing on the work and on the job at hand. And I don't mean this to sound joyless or anything, Mark, but I mean the, there are many, many people out there who are amateurs and dabblers and who uh, delude themselves that they're going to uh, you know, write a novel or make a movie or paint a picture or create whatever they're going to create. But... Um, 
if they don't have the tough-mindedness to handle both the enemies, external enemies and internal enemies, if they don't teach themselves through the school of hard knocks, and really what you're doing with lateral action, I mean, all of your, your courses and your posts are really teaching professionalism, teaching professionalism to creative people who, by definition, are on their own. They're entrepreneurs. They're not within a structure. You know, they don't have a boss that's telling them what to do. Yeah. Uh, they don't have anybody that hands them a paycheck or you know covers their medical. Although I guess in England you guys have got the National Health Service, but right. they're they're on their own, and they need to um, they need something to keep them going. And what that is to me is a kind of a professional ethos yeah. that um, that knows that when to play hurt knows when to shut up and do the work, and, uh, and keeps going. So to me, it's not joyless, although it kind of sounds that, that like it sometimes, but uh, because the joy comes in the work, and the professionalism allows you to do the work. Right, and uh, you know, picking up on that thing, you had a, a nice post recently about Mojo, Ah. And about how maybe you could just talk a bit about because I, I like the way you, you 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 talk about building momentum, building mojo, and you know it seems to be very closely related to this concept of of turning pro and committing. Um, yeah, I think it is, and uh, thanks for referring to that one. You know, mojo is a is a term for a kind of a um, we were talking about tail uh, headwinds. Well, mojo is kind of a tailwind, a creative tailwind. Uh, it's getting into the flow. It's having that kind of mysterious energy where um, things are drawn to you, ideas, people, money, da 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 And where does it come from? It, you can acquire mojo by the habit of commitment and hard work. And even over in this post that I, that I wrote about mojo, I had just come back from a couple of weeks off, and I was kind of getting back into the groove. And... Uh, so I said to myself, you know, over the next three weeks or the next month, I want to really develop some mojo. And uh, so I just set my – so that was – um, part of it was just making sure I worked every day, worked hard every day, banished distractions. I was going to say no to invitations, that, even things I wanted to do. And um, as, as as always happens, it does work. As you sit down and, and uh, put in the time day after day working hard – it's like um, a gravitational field, a field of energy develops around you, and that is an attractive field. It brings things into you. Because you're so focused on what you're doing, you'll start having ideas in the shower and ideas when you're on the bus or in the tube or something. Um, and um, so that's where kind of the joy of it comes in, that what the connection between professionalism and uh, the creative fun and fulfillment is when you um, buckle down and do the work and don't screw around, good things start to happen that, that uh, in a, from coming from a mysterious dimension, coming from the muse, coming from the quantum soup, coming from whatever you want to call it. That's Mojo. Okay. Well, well here's to Mojo. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I was talking to a group of art students recently and one of them, I was talking about, time management productivity for artists and one of them you know put his hand up and he said well yeah but i don't know that i've got the same amount of discipline that you have you know did you sound very disciplined i said i'm not really i said i'm just focused on what is going to give me the most pleasure you know the most fun 
and I know that if if I organize my working life in such a way that I get to work more, I get to write more, you know, it's just it's it's more fulfilling than, you know, the time when I was just doing anything but and letting the distractions rule my life. I like um Noel Coward's phrase, he said work is more fun than fun. <laughs> I never heard that before, but I agree completely. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I mean, so- Henry Miller, I wish, said a great thing about that, too. I wish I had the actual quote, but he said uh, it was uh, something, or he, this was in Tropic of Capricorn or some, something like that, and he said something like, I realized at one point that that thing that others call life, quote-unquote, really held no interest for me. <laughs> and that it was just, you know, and the only thing that he was really interested in, he said, is what I'm doing right now, meaning sitting down and... Uh, and writing, I think I think Seth Godin said something similar to that. In was it? I don't know if it was Tribes or Lynchpin. He said he was on holiday and he couldn't sleep, and he woke up. And you know, because Seth communicates with the world via email a lot, and he just thought he would check his email in. The, and he was in the hotel lobby checking his email, and these people come in from a party, and the, a woman turned and and looked and said something like, "Oh, look at that sad little guy checking his email on holiday." You know. <laughs> like, <laughs> And Seth said, but the thing is, there was nothing I would rather have been doing at that moment than, you know, answering my email, because that, <laughs> that's part of his mission. That's how he's changing the world. Okay, so so hopefully we've established the value of turning pro. Would you say that there's a defining moment in our lives? You know, from I know you've, you've spoken and you've with a lot of people you've observed a lot of people about this would you say that there's a defining moment when somebody finally turns pro and then they get it and then they get on with it or is it more of a daily battle where you've got you know your inner pro and your inner amateur battling it out it can rage both ways I, I think it's both um, and in fact that there are you know another analogy turning pro to me is a little bit like stopping drinking or kicking a drug habit um you're, you're in a state where you're basically throwing your life away, yielding to um, distractions, et cetera, et cetera. And one morning you wake up, you know, in a ditch by the side of the road and you realize that your daughter's violin recital, you know, was last night and you went into a bar for a beer and this is where you woke up, you know, this morning. Yeah. And uh, at that moment you sort of look at yourself and you say, this crap has got to stop, you know. And that's kind of a moment of when you stop being an amateur and you become a pro. And, and it's all just a simple decision. But then, just like a recovering alcoholic, every day, you have to take it one day at a time and fight the same battle every morning. You know, every morning you want to have another drink, you know, and you have to sort of fight that, 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 that urge down and commit to whatever positive thing uh, going forward. There's a... Uh, there's a great story that in, uh, that I stole from Roseanne Cash, the singer, that is in Turning Pro. It comes actually from her book, uh, her memoir called Composed. And I might as well tell it to you now, Mike. You can always cut it if it's too long. No, no, it's a great story. Uh, Let's hear it. I think we should uh, have this And one. for your uh, for your listeners in the UK, I'll have to explain who some of these people are, maybe. Um, Roseanne Cash is uh, Johnny Cash's daughter. She's a, a singer has been for years. And the other um, character in this story is uh, Linda Ronstadt. And uh, I know everybody in America knows who she is, but Linda Ronstadt um, is also a singer. 
and was somewhat of a, of a hero to Roseanne Cash years ago. And Linda Ronstadt came out with a couple of albums in a row, Heart Like a Wheel and Hasten Down the Wind, I think it was in the 70s, that were just absolutely great female albums. Choice of songs, execution, everything, milestones, you know, on a level with Joni Mitchell, stuff like that. So anyway, Roseanne, at, uh, in mid-career, uh, doing very well, had just released an album that had four number one country songs on it called King's Record Shop. And she had, here's a dream she had. This was her moment of turning pro. She dreamt that she was at a party and Linda Ronstadt was at the party. And she was sitting on uh, a sofa. Uh, Linda was at one end. Roseanne was at the other. And in the middle was an older gentleman who somehow in the dream, Roseanne knew his name was Art. Very significant, right? So, right, yeah. And Art was engaged in a deep conversation with Linda Ronstadt. And Roseanne tried to butt into the conversation. And Art sort of turned to her and with withering disdain said, we don't mess around with dilettantes. And Roseanne said she woke up from this dream shaken to the core. And uh, she realized, she started to look at her own recording career, and she realized that even though she achieved a pretty good level of success, that she really was not, she was still dabbling. She had meant to be more of a songwriter, and she'd only written a few songs on this album, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, at that moment, she just decided... I'm going to take myself much more seriously. I'm going to start taking singing lessons at a much higher level than what I've done. I'm going to start writing much more. I'm going to start reading much more. She started painting just so that she could kind of get a feel for a, a nonverbal um, medium. And basically, what she, she already was enough of a pro that she was making money and having hits, but she was not enough of a pro. And so she turned pro again and took it to another level after that. So th th this is all coming back to your question, Mark. That was a defining moment for her. Yeah. And it was interesting to me that it came in a dream, but it could each equally have come something in real life, you know. Uh, but after that defining moment, she still had to commit on a daily basis to, you know, uh, to study and to taking yourself seriously, to working harder, working deeper, go, going deeper into the subject. So, um, so in other words, it's both. It's a defining moment right. and it's daily battle. Right. And it, you can have, presumably, you can have more than one defining moment that when you get to the end of one level of development. Right. I think you have right. many. Another one. Yeah. Never finished. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, that's a terrific story. And also the... The analogy with the alcoholic and the addictions resonates for me because about 12 years ago, something like that, I was working in our national health service as a psychotherapist with people with, um, you know, serious alcohol and street drugs and prescription drugs problems. And it was exactly that pattern. You would very often, you know, someone would come in and they'd had a crisis, you know, a really awful uh, situation. You know, some of them they're close to death or to losing an important relationship or a job and then they would come in and uh, yeah they'd made the decision in your terms to turn pro but they also had a lot of work to do so yeah that analogy absolutely rings true for me okay so finally you know i was going to ask you have you are there 
any tips on turning pro, but I'm not sure that's the right phrase. Maybe we're <laughs> beyond the realm of tips here. But any kind of advice if somebody's say listening to this, thinking, okay, well, you know, I, I need to, to shape up. I, I recognise the amateur in me. I, it's it's time I I became more professional. I'm I'm up for the challenge. Any suggestions for them about first steps that they could take towards that? You know, that's a, it's a great question mark and it's i think it, this realm is beyond tips you know it, it seems like the moment when i when i think of friends of mine who have had these moments and i myself usually the, the moment of turning pro is usually a shattering moment that we've avoided our entire lives you know yeah. so i don't know if we can just simply decide on the spur mm-hmm. say okay i'm going to turn pro this morning no problem yeah uh, it usually doesn't work like that. It's usually um, something that's like the equivalent of the final scene in a movie, you know, where yeah. the Terminator is coming after you and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but um, the one thing I will say is that uh, turning turning pro is just a decision. That's all it is. It's a, But it's a really tough decision to make. But it can happen. It's free and it can be done at any moment. But usually it's, it's a pretty heavy emotional moment that we've run away from our entire lives. Okay, okay. It finally so catches up to us. Right, okay. So it is a, it's a decision that we're free to make at any time. And I Absolutely. Guess, I guess maybe we could say, you know, if, if there's anybody listening to it who's, who's wiser than, than me anyway, you know, make the decision early before you have to go through hell. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> So that might be one way. Okay, Steve, thanks ever so much. You've been really very generous with your time and your wisdom. I would encourage anybody who's listened to this who hasn't yet read it to get hold of Turning Pro and indeed The War of Art. Um, To learn more about Steve's work, um, go to stephenpressfield.com. That's P-R-E-S-S-F-I-E-L-D. And it's Stephen with a V. And... Steve, thanks very much, and you know we'll we'll look forward to hopefully having you at Lateral Action one day soon again. Okay, Mark, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you know, great questions, great back and forth, and uh, so I'm I'm delighted to be here anytime. Great, thank you.